Part Two of Tetric by E. E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That evening, he selected a smooth, fine-grained stone and wetted the already almost perfect cutting edge of his new sword an edge which in cross-section was rather more like an extremely sharp cold chisel than a hollow ground razor he fitted the two-hand grip meticulously with worked and tempered rawhide thrilling again and again as each touch of an educated and talented fingertip told him over and over that here was something brand new in metal a real god metal a piece of flat wrought iron about three sixteenths by five inches and about a foot long already lay on a smooth and heavy hardwood block he tapped it sharply with the sword's edge the blade rang like a bell the iron showed a bright new scar that was all then a moderately heavy two-handed blow about as hard as he had ever dared swing an iron sword still no damage then heart in mouth he gave the god metal its final test struck with everything he had from heels and toes to fingertips he had never struck such a blow before except possibly with a war axe or a sledge there was a ringing clang two sundered slabs of iron flew to opposite ends of the room the atrocious blade went on half an inch deep into solid oak he wrenched the weapon free and stared at the unmarred edge unmarred for an instant tedrick felt as though he were about to collapse but sheerest joy does not disable there was nothing left to do except make the links hinge pins and so on for his armor which did not take long Hence, when the minions of Sarpedion next appeared, armored this time in the heaviest and best iron they had, and all set to overwhelm him by sheer weight of numbers, he was completely ready. Nor was there palaver or parley. The attackers opened the door, saw the smith, and rushed. But Tedric, although in plain sight, had chosen the battleground with care he was in a corner at his back a solid walled stairway ran up to the second floor on his right the wall was solid for twenty feet on his left beyond the stairwell the wall was equally solid for twice as far they would have to come after him and as he retreated they would be fighting their way up and not more than two at a time the first swing, horizontal and neck-high, was fully as fierce-driven as the one that had cloven the test-piece and almost ruined his testing-block. The god-metal blade scarcely slowed as it went through armor and flesh and bone. In fact, the helmet and the head within it remained in place upon the shoulders for what seemed like seconds before the body toppled and the arteries spurted crimson jets. He didn't have to hit so hard then. Good. Nobody could last very long the way he had started out. Wherefore the next blow, a vertical chop, merely split a man to the chin instead of to the navel, 
and the third, a backhanded return, didn't quite cut the victim's head clear off. And the blows his steel was taking, aimed at head or neck or shoulder, were doing no harm at all. In fact, except for the noise, they scarcely bothered him. He had been designing and building armor for five years, and this was his masterpiece. The helmet was heavily padded, the shoulders twice as much so. He had sacrificed some mobility, he could not turn his head very far in either direction, but the jointing was such that the force of any blow on the helmet, from whatever direction coming, was taken by his tremendously capable shoulders. The weapons of the mercenaries could not dent, could not even nick that case-hardened high-alloy steel. Swords bent, broke, twisted, hammers and axes bounced harmlessly off. Nevertheless, the attackers pressed forward, and even though each blow of his devastating sword took a life, Tedric was forced backward up the stairs, step by step. Then there came about that for which he had been waiting. A copper-clad priest appeared behind the last rank of mercenaries, staring upward at something behind the ironmaster, beckoning frantically. The priest had split his forces, had sent part of them by another way to the second floor to trap him between two groups, had come in close to see the trap sprung. This was it. Taking a couple of quick upward-backward steps, he launched himself into the air with all the power of his legs. And when two hundred and thirty pounds of man, dressed in eighty or ninety or a hundred pounds of steel, leaps from a height of eight or ten feet upon a group of other men, those other men go down. Writing himself quickly, Tedric sprang toward the priest and swung, swung with all the momentum of his mass and speed and all the power of his giant frame, swung as though he were concentrating into the blow all his hatred of Sarpedion and everything for which Sarpedion stood, which, in fact, he was. And what such a saber scimitar so driven did to thin, showy copper armor and to the human flesh beneath it is simply nothing to dwell upon here. Hold! he roared at the mercenaries, who hadn't quite decided whether or not to resume the attack. And they held. But, but, but you're dead, the non-com stuttered. You must be. The great Sarpedion would... A right lively corpse, I, Tedric snarled. You're Sarpedion, false god and coward, drinker of blood and slayer of the helpless, is weak, puny, and futile beside my Losir. Hence, under Losir's shield and at Losir's direction, I shall this day kill your foul and depraved god, shall send him back to the grisly hell from whence he came. Nor do I ask you to fight for me, nor would I so allow, for I trust you not, though you swore by all your gods. Do you fight for pleasure or for pay? A growl was the only answer, but that was answer enough. He of Sarpedion, who paid your wages, lies there, dead. All others of his ilk will die ere this day's sunset. Be advised, therefore, 
fight no more until you know who pays wouldst any more of you be split like white fish ere i go time runneth short but i would stay and oblige if pressed he was not pressed tedric whirled and strode away should he get his horse or not no he had never ridden mighty Drigar into danger wearing armor less capable than his own, and he wouldn't begin now. The Temple of Sarpedion was a tall, narrow building, with a far-flung outside staircase leading up to the penthouse-like excrescence in which the green altar of sacrifice was. Tedric reached the foot of that staircase, and grimly, doggedly, cut his way up it. It was hard work, and he did not want to wear himself out too soon. He might need a lot, and suddenly, later on, and it would be a good idea to have something in reserve. As he mounted higher and higher, however, the opposition became less and less instead of greater and greater as he had expected. Priests were no longer there. He hadn't seen one for five minutes, and in the penthouse itself, Instead of the solid phalanx of opposition he had known would bar his way, there were only half a dozen mercenaries who promptly turned tail and ran. "'The way is clear! Hasten!' Tedric shouted, and his youthful squire rushed up the ramp with his axe and hammer. And with those ultra-hard, ultra-tough implements, Tedric mauled and chopped the image of the god." Divan, Sarpedion's high priest, was desperate. He believed thoroughly in his god. Equally thoroughly, however, he believed in the actuality and in the power of Tedric's new god. He had to, for the miracle he had performed spoke for itself. While Sarpedion had not appeared personally in Divan's lifetime, he had so appeared many times in the past and by a sufficiently attractive sacrifice he could be persuaded to appear again, particularly since this appearance would be in self-defense. No slave or any number of slaves would do, nor criminals, no ordinary version of the common people. This sacrifice must be of supreme quality. The king himself? Too old and tough and sinful. Ah! the king's daughter at the thought the pit of his stomach turned cold however desperate situations require desperate remedies he called in his henchmen and issued orders thus it came about that a towering figure clad in flashing golden armor the king himself with a few courtiers scrambling far in his wake dashed up the last few steps just as Tedric was wrenching out Sarpedion's liver. "'Tedric, attend!' the monarch panted. "'The priests have taken Roan and are about to give her to Sarpedion.' "'They can't, sire. I've just killed Sarpedion right here.' "'But they can! They've taken the holiest one from the innermost shrine, have enshrined him on the temple of Skene. Slay me those traitor priests, for they slay Rowan, and you may— Tedric did not hear the rest of it, nor was his mind chiefly concerned with the plight of the royal maid. 
It was Sarpedion he was after. With a blistering oath, he dropped the god's liver, whirled around, and leaped down the stairway. It would do no good to kill only one Sarpedion. He would have to kill them both, especially since the holiest one was the major image. The holiest one. The Sarpedion never before seen except by first-rank priests. Of course, that would be the one they'd use in sacrificing a king's daughter. He should have thought of that himself sooner, damn him for a fool. It probably wasn't too late yet, but the sooner he got there, the better would be his chance of winning. Hence he ran, and farther and farther behind him came the king and the courtiers. Reaching the temple of Skene, he found to his immense relief that he would not have to storm that heavily manned rampart alone. A full company of the royal guard was already there. Battle was in progress, but very little headway was being made against the close-packed defenders of the god, and Tedric knew why. A man fighting against a god was licked before he started, and he knew it. He'd have to build up their morale. But did he have time? Probably. They couldn't hurry things too much without insulting Sarpedion, for the absolutely necessary ceremonies took a lot of time. Anyway, he'd have to take the time, or he'd never reach the god. Art Lord Tedric, a burly captain disentangled himself from the front rank and saluted. I'm Tedric, yes. Knewest I was coming? Yes, Lord. Orders came by Helio, but now. You are in command. You speak with the voice of King Fagon himself. Good. Call your men back thirty paces. Pick me out the twelve or fifteen strongest to lead. Men of the Royal Guard, he raised his voice to a volume audible not only to his own men, but also to all the enemy. Who is the most powerful swordsman among you? Stand forward. This armor I wear is not of iron, but of god metal, the metal of Losir, my personal and all-powerful god. That all may hear, see, and know, I command you to strike at me, your shrewdest and most effective, most powerful blow. The soldier, after a couple of false starts, did manage a stroke of sorts. I said strike, Tedric roared. Think you ordinary iron can harm the personal metal of a god? Strike where you please, at head or neck or shoulders or guts. But strike as though you meant it. Strike to kill. Shatter your sword. Strike. Convulsively the fellow struck, swinging for the neck, and at the impact his blade snapped into three pieces. A wave of visible relief swept over the guardsmen, one of dismay and shock over the ranks of the foe. "'I implore pardon, lord,' the soldier begged, dropping to one knee. "'Up, man, tis nothing, and by my direct order. Now, men, I can tell you a thing you would not have fully believed before. I have just killed half of Sarpedion, and he could not touch me.' I am about to kill his other half. You will see me do it. Come what may of God or devil, you need not fear it, for I and all with me fight under Losir's shield. We men 
will have to deal only with the flesh and blood of those runty mercenaries of Tark. He studied the enemy formation briefly. A solid phalanx of spearmen with shields latticed and braced, close-set spears outthrust and anchored. Strictly defensive. They hadn't made a move to follow nor throw a single javelin when the king's forces withdrew. This wasn't going to be easy, but it was possible. "'We will make the formation of the wedge with me as point,' he went on. "'Sergeant, you will bear my sword and hammer. "'The rest of you will ram me into the center of that phalanx "'with everything of driving force that in you lies. "'I will make and maintain enough of opening. "'We'll go up that ramp like a fast ship plowing through waves. "'Make wedge. Drive!' Except for his armor of god-metal, Tedric would have been crushed flat by the impact of the flying wedge against the soldiery packed so solidly on the stair. Several of the foe were so crushed, but the new armor held. Tedric could scarcely move his legs enough to take each step. His body was held as though in a vice, but his giant arms were free, and by dint of short savage punching jabs and prods and strokes of his atrocious war-axe he made and maintained the narrow opening upon which the success of the whole operation depended and into that constantly renewed opening the smith was driven irresistibly driven by the concerted and synchronized strength of the strongest men of lomar's royal guard the result was not exactly like that of a diesel-powered snowplow but it was good enough. The mercenaries did not flow over the sides of the ramp in two smooth waves. However, unable with either weapons or bodies to break through the slanting walls of iron formed by the smoothly overlapping shields of the guardsmen, over the edges they went, the living and the dead. The dreadful wedge drove on. As the guardsmen neared the top of the stairway, the mercenaries disappeared. Enough of that kind of thing was a great plenty, and Tedric, after a quick glance around to see what the situation was, seized his sword from the bearer. Old Devon had his knife aloft, but in only the third of the five formal passes, two more to go. "'Kill those priests,' he snapped at the captain. "'I'll take the three at the altar. You fellows take the rest of them.' When Tedric reached the green altar, the sacrificial knife was again aloft, but the same stroke that severed Devon's upraised right arm severed also his head and his whole left shoulder. Two more whistling strokes and a moment's study of the scene of action assured him that there would be no more sacrifices that day. The king's archers had followed close behind the guards. The situation was well in hand. He exchanged sword for axe and hammer, and furiously, viciously went to work on the god. He yanked out the holiest one's brain, liver, and heart, hammered and chopped the rest of him to bits. That done, he turned to the altar. He had not even glanced at it before. Stretched taut, spread-eagled by wrists and ankles on the reeking, blood-fouled green horror-stone, the lady Rowan lay, her yard-long, thick brown hair 
a wide-flung riot. Six priests had not immobilized Rowan of Lomar without a struggle. Her eyes went from shattered image to blood-covered armored giant and back to image. Her face was a study of part horrified, part terrified, part worshipful amazement. He slashed the ropes, extended his mailed right hand. Art hurt, Lady Rowan? No, just if. Taking his hand, she sat up, a bit groggily, and flexed wrists and ankles experimentally, while behind his visor the man stared and stared. Tall, wide, but trim, superbly made, a true scion of the old blood. Lothair's liver, what a woman! He had undressed her mentally more than once, but his visionings had fallen short, far short, of the entrancing, the magnificent truth. What a woman! A virgin? Technically so, perhaps. More shame to those pusillanimous half-breed midgets of the court. If he had been born noble. She slid off the altar and stood up, her eyes still dark with fantastically mixed emotions. She threw both arms around his armored neck and snuggled close against his steel, heedless that breasts and flanks were being smeared anew with half-dried blood. He put an iron-clad arm around her, moved her arm enough to open his visor, saw sea-green eyes only a few inches below his own, staring straight into his. The man's quick passion flamed again. Gods of the ancients! What a woman! There was a mate for a full-grown man. <sighs> Thank the gods! The king dashed up, panting, but in surprisingly good shape for a man of forty-odd who had run so far in gold armor. Thanks be to all the gods you are in time. Just barely, sire, but in time. Name your reward, Lord Tedric. I will be glad to make you my son. Not that, sire, ever. If there's anything in the world or the next I don't want to be, it's Lady Rowan's brother. Make him lord of the marches, father, the girl said sharply. Knowest what the sages said? Twits to be better, the monarch agreed. Tedric of old Lomar, I appoint you lord of the upper, the middle, and the lower marches. The highest of the high. Tedric went to his knees. I thank you, sire. Have I your backing in wiping out what is left of Sarpedion's power? If you will support the throne with the strength I so clearly see is to be yours, I will back you with the full power of the throne in anything you wish to do. Of course I will support you, sire, as long as I live and with all that in me lies. Since time first was, my blood has been vassal to yours, and ever will be. My brain, my liver, and my heart are yours. I thank you, Lord Tedric. Proceed. Tedric snapped to his feet. His sword flashed high in the air. His heavy voice rang out. People of Lomar, listen to a herald of the throne. Sarpedion is dead. Losair lives. Human sacrifice, yes, all sacrifice except the one I am about to perform of Sarpedion himself to Losair is done. That is and will be the law. 
To that end, there will be no more priests, but a priestess only. I speak as herald for the throne of Lomar. He turned to the girl, still clinging to his side. I had it first in mind, Lady Rowan, to make you priestess, but— Not I, she interrupted vigorously. No priestess I, Lord Tedric. By Losir's brain, girl, you're right. You've been wasted long enough. In another time-track, another Skandos and another Furman, almost but not quite identical with those first so named, poured over a chronoviagram. The key point in time is there, the prime physicist said thoughtfully, placing the point of his pencil near one jagged peak of the trace. The key figure is Lord Tetric of Lomar, the discoverer of the carburization of steel. He could be manipulated very easily, but after all, the real catastrophe is about 318 years away. There is nothing alarming about the shape of the curve, and any interference with the actual physical events of the past would almost certainly prove calamitous. Over the years I have found your judgment good. What is your thought on this matter, Furman? I would say to wait, at least for a few weeks or months. Even though 812 fails, number 850 or number 900 may succeed. At the very worst, we will be in the same position then as now to take the action which has for a hundred years been specifically forbidden by both council and school. So be it. End of Tedric by E. E. Smith This recording by Phil Chenevere Thank you for listening.